0: Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for for joining us today for what will be a really fascinating discussion on Rapid Shallow Breathing Index. Today, we are very fortunate to have have Dr. Trevedi as our guest. We'll be discussing his article entitled, The Utility of the Rapid Shallow Breathing Index in Predicting Successful Extubation, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. We will also discuss the accompanying editorial by Dr. Olette. So, um, Dr. Trivedi, can you please introduce
1: yourself? Of course. Thanks for having me here. Uh, my name is uh, Vatsal Trevetti. I'm currently uh, an intensivist and cardiac anesthesiologist at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada. Um, I've been practicing uh, as an intensivist for um, uh, a few years now and a, uh, more recently as a cardiac anesthesiologist as well. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here to have this discussion today. And it's a pleasure to have you. And then we also have Dr. Olette.
2: Good morning. This is Dr. Daniel Olette. I'm a pulmonary and critical care specialist at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. I'm also an associate professor of medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine
0: an absolute pleasure to have both of you on a very important topic. Um, So, Dan, I want to kick off with you. Um, Why is it so important for us to correctly predict successful extubation? And for the benefit of our audience, what is a rapid shallow breathing index?
2: Sure. It's critically important for ICU specialists to try to liberate patients from mechanical ventilation. We know that every additional day that a patient spends on mechanical ventilation is associated with an increased mortality rate. At the same time, patients who are liberated from the ventilator but then require reintubation have a very high mortality rate. So having precise decision-making in terms of deciding when to liberate someone from the mechanical ventilator is crucial. The rapid shallow breathing test has been used to assess Patients who are undergoing what we call a spontaneous breathing trial as one metric to assess a person's success at the spontaneous breathing trial. The rapid shallow breathing index was first discussed carefully about 30 years ago. What it is, is it's a ratio of the spontaneous respiratory rate to the tidal volume in liters. And a metric has often been used at a level of approximately 105. That was what the initial studies demonstrated, that less than 105 was associated with successful liberation and over 105 was less likely to be associated with that. And so we have used that metric to assess spontaneous breathing trial success and hopefully to predict liberation from mechanical ventilation that can be done successfully.
0: Great. And then what other tools do we have as uh, ICU physicians to successfully predict extubation? So the RISP is one uh, tool. What other tools uh, do you routinely use?
2: Well, in fact, what, hap- what happens in my ICU and in my practice is that more and more, I'm looking towards a global assessment of the patient so that I don't use any one metric, including the RSBI, to predict, but in fact, use that as part of a a complex global gestalt of how someone's doing. Certainly, you want to make sure that the patient is clinically stable and has stable vital signs during a, rapid, during a spontaneous breathing trial. The other thing that I always want to make sure about is that the patient has an adequate mental status, that they can protect their airway and have a gag reflex, uh, and that other indices about their underlying condition are improving. So, I think we're moving from a single metric to be used in the, in the uh, spontaneous breathing trial to doing a global clinical assessment during the trial to determine whether or not we think that somebody can be successfully extubated.
0: Definitely. We want a holistic approach. So, uh, Vatsa, I want to uh, draw you into this discussion. You focused specifically on uh, the Rapicello Breathing Index. What was the motivation
1: and rationale for your study? Uh, th- thanks for the question. I think the um, uh, th- it's a bit of a twofold question. So in terms of the motivation for for doing this study, a lot of it, like like much good research, stemmed from a clinical observation. Uh, I noticed on rounds that often um, we have multidisciplinary rounds, and our respiratory therapists would um, let us know whether a patient had uh, passed or failed a spontaneous breathing trial, and uh, what we found it challenging, or what I found it challenging at times was to really identify why someone had passed or failed a spontaneous breathing trial. Going back to, to something that was mentioned, that this is a, a very complex decision-making process and, and distilling it down sometimes to the one number that their RSBI was 110 or 120 or what have you, uh, that alone sometimes changed the trajectory of care for patients. So I, I guess my co-authors and I started thinking about whether this was actually a valid assessment in and of itself. And going back to some of the primary literature that was discussed by uh, Tobin and Yang, um, we found that it was a very small group of patients uh, with you know, both a validation and a derivation cohort combined of only 100 patients or so. Uh, granted, 30 years ago, this was, this was seminal. We thought we may need some bit more data, a bit more nuance in whether or not this truly was a, a, a useful test. Whether in isolation uh, or, or or not, so that was a bit of the motivation um, and, and the, the next step of which I think've we've, we've talked a bit about is uh, uh, as been identified both in the editorial and with uh, Dr Wolette uh, here is we know that patients that stay intubated for too long have poorer outcomes with respect to morbidity and mortality, and we know that patients that are extubated early have similarly poor outcomes with respect to morbidity and mortality. And so making this decision on when it's safe to liberate someone from a ventilator uh, is challenging. And and what we find clinically, and this is shown in some of our results, is is several people in the last 20 years uh, from when the previous meta-analysis was published in CHEST uh, have started to use the RSBI more and more for a few reasons, I believe. One thing, I think it's, it's a relatively simple measure, uh, it's, I think, heuristically, we all want one number to fall back on and help us guide our decision-making in a complex ICU environment, and I think as a result of that, we have probably relied on it a fair amount in clinical practice, and some of the evidence would suggest that, given that we've had a multitude of papers published since that time. So part of the rationale was to see if really we were doing the right thing and if we were using the right tool for this complex decision-making process.
0: So, Vasil, you you make a really important point that it's a pretty simple and easy tool to use. You take the uh, respiratory rate divided by the um, tidal volume, and if the patient is breathing slowly and there's a higher tidal volume, that's much better than a patient who's breathing fast and takes smaller tidal volumes. So, given the fact that it appears simple that uh, we're in a complex ICU environment, what limitations did you identify in using the RSBI prior to conducting your study?
1: Well, I think um, if, if, if I can liken this to uh, if we take a step back and think about um, the reasons why we intubate someone and the reasons why we intubate someone aren't simply because they have rapid, shallow breathing. They're complex. They have airway protection challenges. Maybe their ventilation is impaired. Uh, maybe their circulation is, is, is altered due to a hyperdynamic state or they have altered level of consciousness. There, there is a, a, a whole host of reasons we may intubate uh, Intubate someone or initiate mechanical ventilation, and so to distill down the liberation end of it to a simple measure such as the RSBI to me sounded um, a, a bit too simplistic, and so clinically I think that's something that 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 I wanted to I, or the team and I wanted to kind of identify whether whether this is the right thing, and 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 I think. Part of the real limitations of the RSBI is that it often doesn't take into account uh, things like airway protection and um, uh, maybe some large large airway edema, a lack of a cuff leak, if that's important, or hemodynamic stability, level of consciousness, impaired cough, all of these things that we kind of talk about from a more holistic, uh, global view of whether someone is ready to be liberated. None of that is really captured well in the RSBI.
0: Definitely. So let's jump into your study methods and uh, how they addressed any limitations of previous studies. Of course.
1: So we, uh, the, the, the team and I that I worked with, we um, undertook this systematic review. Uh, uh, initially, uh, our search strategy was done on September the 19th. We wanted to be very broad in our inclusion criteria, and so we searched several databases from the inception of those databases up until late 2019, Um, looking essentially for studies that were either randomized control trials or observational studies with adult critically ill patients that were ventilated for more than 24 hours, um, for which the RSBI was used in predicting extubation success. Um, And the the definition of extubation success we also kept fairly broad at the um, purview of the individual study authors, although it was almost uniformly defined as, as being more than two days or 48 hours. We we did also want to include kind of all types of patients, recognizing that our ICUs are also clinically very heterogeneous uh, at times. So we wanted to include elderly patients, younger patients, patients with medical or surgical diagnoses and um, indications for intensive care, uh, as well as uh, multiple different RSBI thresholds, um, whether that was 80 or 105 or, or otherwise. Uh, we we only really had two uh, exclusion criteria, and one of those was patients who were on a tracheostomy as part of their liberation plan, uh, because we thought at that point the RSBI is not clinically uh, a useful tool if someone's on a prolonged mechanical weaning uh, protocol, as well as patients admitted to the ICU after a major lung resection, given that the dynamics of their ventilation are are, are, are altered pretty significantly. Um, We we then moved to do our uh, search and uh, ultimately ended up with a a fair number of articles. Um, And what we did with each of these articles is we tried to construct or uh, extract sensitivity and specificity data. And where this wasn't available immediately, we calculated our own sensitivity and specificity with two by two um, uh, matrices for each individual study. The actual study selection and data abstractation and quality assessment was done in a fairly rigorous way with uh, independent assessment um, uh, from two study authors. And finally, our risk of bias was done in an evidence based way with the QUADIS2 tool, um, uh, looking mainly at selection, uh, their use of an index test, and, and their reference standard. Uh, Finally, in terms of our um, analyses themselves, uh, we uh, analyzed uh, generally in regression models our sensitivity, specificity, and odds ratios, and we had a priori uh, identified subgroups that we want to uh, analyze as well. And these included RSBI thresholds, so a threshold of 80 versus 105, uh, particular surgical populations versus medical populations um, based on the type of ICU patients were admitted in, uh, whether or not patients had a diagnosis of COPD, as well as elderly or non-elderly patients. Um, and, and finally, we also wanted to look at the operational characteristics of the test, so the timing of the RSBI, what type of level of support it was um, uh, derived on, as we know that these may also alter the uh, the actual individual value of the RSBI. So we, we tried to be, in a sense, fairly uh, open in what we were uh, including simply because we wanted to synthesize all the literature we had available in all these heterogeneous areas.
0: So that's a pretty comprehensive overview of your study methods. Uh, Dan, you had the chance to review this paper. What struck you about the study methods and um, were there any concerns?
2: So I think what struck me is that this is a very well-done systematic review and meta-analysis, and I think that the tools of systematic review, and meta-analysis are becoming increasingly important in medicine, <clears throat> we're often faced with questions where we have uh, multiple small studies which may or may not show important outcome differences. But that these tools allow us to look globally at the work that's been done and, in, in, in fact, you look at a large population of patients to whom an intervention has been applied. So I think that the use of these methods... Um, is, is a really good way to help us answer an important clinical question, and I think this work was very important in this regard. I, I, I don't think that there are any study limitations in the sense, I, I think that there are limitations of the methods to some extent. So um, when you create a systematic review or, or meta-analysis, you're relying on the data that others have done, and I know what these uh, workers have found, uh, which we often find when we do these things, is that you have different articles where there are different outcomes and that maybe some of their methods, biases, um, elements of data data collection are not as clear as you would like it to be. So your, your main limitation really has to do with the primary data that you're looking at. And, and you'd always wish that it was more complete than what you have. But I think given... Um, given this very robust set of data that um, the team had here from Toronto, they, they did a great job at looking at this question.
0: Good. So, Walter, let's jump into your key findings. And what were they and how did you interpret them?
1: Of course. So we ultimately ended up including 48 studies, all of which were observational uh, in our um, analysis. And this as a whole included just under 11,000 patients altogether, or I should say 11,000 uh, patient interactions and RSBI measurements. Um, we had mostly heterogeneous ICU patient populations with only a subset being specifically either neurologic ICU or, cardi- or surgical ICUs. Uh, and, and we were pretty happy with kind of the, what we had gotten at that point. Um, in terms of our primary results, in terms of our primary analysis, we found that the RSBI less than 105, which is kind of what was found in the initial 1991 Tobin and Yang paper, had only moderate sensitivity uh, and poor specificity at um, predicting extubation success. And um, we can talk a little bit about, uh, about that when we talked about our subgroups uh, in, in the um, uh, secondary analyses, despite trying to find multiple different subgroup uh, interactions with the thresholds of RSBI, so 80 versus 105, or measurement techniques, T-piece versus pressure support versus CPAP, the timing of the RSBI measurement, so either measured immediately at the start of a spontaneous breathing trial uh, in the middle or at the end, Uh, as well as in patient demographic populations, so patients with COPD, elderly versus non-elderly, all uh, all of these subgroup analyses uh, really didn't show any deviation from our primary analysis and were not statistically uh, different in their um, uh, uh, sensitivity and specificity that was pooled. Uh, I, I did want to note that we did have a significant amount of heterogeneity in both our primary and secondary analyses, Uh, We thought that potentially some of our secondary analyses might account for the the heterogeneity, although it was still significant uh, with values greater than 70% for almost all of our analyses. Finally, we also uh, did a sensitivity analysis looking at only low risk of bias studies, as we thought perhaps the the bias included in the individual studies might be accounting for some of the the heterogeneity, but that, again, was uh, uh, the the moderate sensitivity and poor specificity was upheld and not significantly different from our primary analysis. So all that to distill down to the fact that we think uh, in our assessment of these results that the utility of the RSBI uh, less than 105 probably has poor sensitivity and poor specificity to um, predict extubation success. We finally also applied a grade framework to some of these questions, and uh, for our primary analysis, we had moderate certainty, but we had low certainty in the evidence for our secondary analyses.
0: So, Dan, you had the chance to review uh, this paper. Um, how did you interpret it, and uh, what do you make of the poor sensitivity and poor specificity? Should we be using uh, RISBs in patients with, in the ICU?
2: I think it's a great question that you've just asked. I think that this work was really important because it highlighted the poor sensitivity and specificity of this particular metric. You know, when Yang and Tobin first reported this metric, what they did was compare this metric with other metrics, and they found that this metric was more predictive in their small group than other metrics. So I think what this does to me is it reinforces for me, in my clinical practice, in what I teach, and what I tell others, it reinforces the idea that um, one really has to have a global assessment of a patient during a spontaneous breathing trial to make this, the important clinical judgment about whether to extubate them or not. I don't think that this study will tell me never to look at RSBI. I, don't think, I think that would be the wrong answer. I think that what it does tell me is that this is one metric, one test out of many other elements that I need to look at when I do a bedside assessment of the patient. So I'm I'm still going to get the RSBI, but I'm just going to be very cautious about its application. I'm certainly not going to make a clinical decision based on this number alone. The other thing that I think is important to remember is that this number, the RSBI, is really a continuous number. And when we talk about RSBI thresholds, we're, we're converting what's a continuous variable into into a threshold value. And I know that this systematic review was well done in the sense that they picked a couple of different cut points for the threshold. But I I think that if I calculate an RSBI for a patient, for example, and it's very low, I'm going to feel a lot better than if it's moderately high or something like that. So I think that using this metric thoughtfully and in the context of the global setting is what I'm going to do in the future. I think that's how how it should be used. I don't think that you um, abandoned it entirely. I also would say that there are probably other metrics that fell out of favor because of comparative studies, things like a maximal inspiratory force or the minute ventilation, they probably are important. And although they may not be completely predictive or not high sensitivity or specificity either, in selected patients, they might be quite useful. So I think we need to develop a more global approach to these patients and to this decision-making process.
0: That was a really good comment. Uh, Russell, what is your uh, response to that? Um, Would you have the same interpretation?
1: well I, I I think we definitely agree on uh, the utility of the RSBI in um, harmony or in symphony with all the other uh, markers we have and indeed, I think at my center uh, or within the the city of Toronto and our kind of harmonized interdepartment um, division of critical care, we have one way of uh, conducting SBTs and what we've done is we've included that at every site to Um, standardize the practice, and whether or not someone passes or fails an SBT indeed does not rely on a single measure of the RSBI, but often a global assessment, which, uh, as identified earlier, does include things like hemodynamic stability or patient comfort, um, heart rate, and and these sorts of things. So I think it would be reasonable to, or at least not unreasonable, to say that the RSBI in isolation might not be the best test, just like many tests in isolation are not uh, the best tests and would probably be a part of a global assessment. I, I certainly agree with that. I might go a step further to say that, you know, in, in, in patients that we we think the, they might pass the SBT and be okay to liberate from the ventilator without too much trouble, the RSBI probably doesn't add much. What I mean to say is we often practice in Bayesian ways, without opening a can of worms there, that uh, we often have pre- and post-test probabilities of how we think a patient will do once liberated. Sometimes we're very wrong about that. But I think in patients where they have a very uh, low index of suspicion for extubation failure, the RSBI probably doesn't add much, even if the number is low or high. I think, and and we've, we've talked a bit about that in our discussion in the paper, is patients who are at that intermediate pretest probability of extubation success, I do believe there still might be a role of the RSBI there to help guide decision-making one way or the other as part of a bigger picture on on, on what the physiological requirements of this patient might be. So, so certainly not out of favor altogether and out the window, but I think we may need a more nuanced approach in when we utilize the RSBI in decision-making.
0: Definitely. So Dan, you, you mentioned the importance of... Um we have continuous variables that we sometimes go ahead and dichotomize. We say yes, no, and make a decision when, in actual fact, it's a continuous variable. It's open to interpretation, and it seems to be a challenge that we face in a lot of decisions that we make in the ICU. How would you advise clinicians to address this issue um, of trying to avoid, you know, a yes, no, uh, to, to have a more nuanced approach?
2: Well, I think you. I think one has to be thoughtful about the data that they're using. Um, and so uh, there have been studies that have been done that have looked at the RSBI as a continuous variable. And we do know that the lower that it is, the more likely the person is going to do, do well when they have a spontaneous breathing trial. So I think we should encourage um, the inclusion of this number, this metric in a, in a global assessment. And I think that's how you do it. I think one thing that's Going to that I think is important and needs to be explored more in the future is that, um, as we just talked about, in the patient where you have questions where their RSBI is in the moderate range, um, it may be helpful when somebody is clearly doing very well with a spontaneous breathing trial. Um, a low RSBI isn't really adding anything because you know that they're going to be successful. But I think that. What this systematic review does is also challenges a little bit on the other side. And the thing that I know is that early liberation from mechanical ventilation is better is associated with good outcomes. And what I see happening sometimes is that practitioners use a high RSBI above the threshold to make the decision not to extubate. And I think one of the the things that should be explored and one of the things that maybe comes out of the idea that this number doesn't have high specificity and sensitivity is the idea that just because the RSBI is high doesn't mean that a patient can't be successfully extubated. There are... Patients who will have a high RSBI who can be extubated, and I think we need to look at the other side of the threshold too. That above the level doesn't mean no. That I think we need to be thoughtful about how we approach these patients.
0: Your comments, all
1: I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And uh, uh, when I when when you first asked me kind of what was the rationale or motivation to do this study, it was it, a lot of the times it was certainly that is the single reason a patient wasn't liberated from the ventilator was because they had, quote-unquote, failed an SBT due to a high RSBI, And I think, uh, I, I think I wholeheartedly agree with the idea that we need to rethink that, that decision-making. Um, and, and, and I would hope some of the evidence we've presented helps with that.
0: Agree. So um, I do want to jump into the limitations of your study. The, the, there are no uh, perfect uh, systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and um, as Dan alluded to already, th- sometimes the limitations are due to the original studies. So maybe you could comment on that for us, Eva. To like, uh, w- what did you encounter, and um, when the audience interprets um, your paper and your findings, what should they bear in mind?
1: Well I think that that's uh that's a limitation of all systematic reviews and and ours is is no different in that we are at the mercy of the uh, evidence that is available to us and while we've tried with some very nuanced statistical thinking and and grade methodology to try and tease out how much of that evidence we can actually take into account it ultimately does still rely on the primary evidence base and so to to readers of this uh, article I would just say that that I think you know, based on the risk of bias and our grade methodology, any of the findings we have found, we had, we are very clear in what had high heterogeneity, high risk of bias, and which areas were of low certainty of evidence. So I think often we can fall back pretty easily on, on confidence intervals or, um, or sorry, uh, uh, on the actual value, uh, but we should also think about confidence intervals and, and and certainty of evidence, which I think we've tried to present very clearly here. Uh, we were fortunate to have some of our co-authors be very well-versed well, wor- well versed in some of this methodology, and so I would I would suggest that any readers of this paper really do take a close look at that because it does identify some limitations, particularly um, with respect to the significant heterogeneity in almost all of our analyses that we were not able to explain by any of our subgroup or sensitivity analyses, and I think a lot of that was because of the underlying um, evidence base we had, and just significant heterogeneity in, in how this test is conducted uh, be, between all the all the articles we were able to to include. I agree. I think you, you, your team definitely gave us a very
0: thoughtful and thorough approach. Um, Dan, uh, any limitations that you want the audience to be aware of that we haven't covered?
2: I, I don't think so. I, I think that we've talked about the limitations in the data. Um, I you, you, one has to note that the studies that were looked at in the systematic review were observational studies. And one of the things that I think often is important when you think about systematic reviews, meta-analyses, guidelines, is that when there's a deficiency pointed out in the data, that this is, a, is often a call for further research. So if you've got a collection of small observational studies and this is such an important question. Doesn't that call on us to do, to study this question prospectively, looking at other indices perhaps as well, and try to come to a, a better conclusion uh, in terms of how, how to answer this question of liberation? So I think it's a call, call to arms, if you will, a call to do further research.
0: So I want to. Uh, dive into that a bit more because if there's one thing that we found over the last uh, decade or couple of decades is that there are a lot of tools that we are using in the ICU that have findings like this, you know, uh, poor sensitivities, poor specificity um, and in isolation we can't use them but Globally, when we uh, line them up with other tests and other tools, we somehow are able to put it together to make a decision. How are we going to address this in the future? Because there seems to be this, as you said, a call to arms to address it, but few people have actually gone ahead and, uh, and done the necessary research to uh, find the ideal tool to predict a successful liberation. Dan?
2: Sure. So I think that these studies in an ICU population are hard to do. Um, when you look at outcomes, mortality in the ICU, um, long-term mortality, length of ICU stay. We're often dealing with a very heterogeneous population, and so it's hard to prove that interventions work in an ICU. I think what I hear us talking about today, though, is the idea that if a global assessment is the most useful thing right now in assessing a spontaneous breathing tile. There may be more sophisticated indices that incorporate several metrics or several elements of care may be useful. We know in other domains in medicine that in fact um, indices of that sort are more predictive often than individual elements that made up that that, uh, more sophisticated approach. And it seems to me that liberation from mechanical ventilation is a domain that would benefit from developing such a thing. I think we've mentioned several elements that might be included in such, a, such an approach today, and I think careful thought might reveal some others. And I think looking at larger populations in a prospective fashion would be really, really useful.
0: Gotcha. So I do want to be mindful of both of your uh, time. Um, So as we draw to the end of this podcast, I want to give you both an opportunity to um, give us any concluding remarks as well as um, uh, any thoughts you want to leave our audience with um, about uh, liberation from the ventilator. Dan, I'll start with you, and uh, we'll uh, turn to uh, Vatzel.
2: I think this is a great meta-analysis that looks carefully at a metric that's widely used in critical care medicine, and informs us about a decision to liberate patients from mechanical ventilation. What we've learned from this systematic review is that the RSBI, the metric in question, has poor sensitivity and specificity. The message going forward is that we need to do a global assessment during the spontaneous breathing trial. As was mentioned during this talk, organizing this approach, along health system lines so that we provide consistency of care is really a crucial way to approach this this question and this problem. I believe that we need to also remember when we do spontaneous breathing trials that an RSBI that's high does not mean you can't liberate someone from a ventilator. And I hope we do more research in the future that looks at global indices that includes a, a variety of metrics and elements of care so that we can be more careful about predicting uh, who will be successfully
1: liberated. Thank you, Dan.
0: Um, so, that's, I'll give you the final uh,
1: uh, comment. Thanks so much. Um, I think we, what we'd hope to do at the onset of this study is to identify whether the rapid shallow breathing index is of um, good clinical utility at the bedside and identifying which patients can be liberated from mechanical ventilation. And I'd hope that what we found in our study of you know almost 50 papers in 11,000 patients, is that the RSBI in isolation has poor sensitivity and specificity for this for this use in terms of determining liberation from mechanical ventilation. We've talked a bit about uh, some of the limitations of that uh, as a whole and some nuance in our approach that might be required, and I wholeheartedly agree that we do need to think about the RSBI in particular situations of how it can help us uh, uh, advance a patient's care, particularly when the RSBI is high, with all other indicators suggesting success from liberation of ventilation. I think it also points to the idea that uh, we've been looking in critical care, volume assessment might be another thing to think about, is we don't, we like to rely on single measures, and we like to have that heuristic model in our mind, but often these are complex patients with complex requirements, and we can't, we often can't use a single tool to determine whether or not we can change their decision pathway one way or the other. And so we need to be more global in our assessment as we've said a few times and I think I hope our, I, I would hope our study is, is leading us towards that direction and an evidence base in that direction as well.
0: Yeah, I want to thank you both for a very uh, stimulating conversation. I've learned a lot, and I appreciate both the thoughtful manner in which you conducted the study and for uh, the really impressive editorial that accompanied it. Um, A very very big thank you to both of you uh, for a great conversation, and thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is The Chess Podcast.